Hello, New Jersey. Welcome to another edition of On the Record. Good morning. It is Wednesday, January the 23rd. You know, there was a time when Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill stood like two towers of great journalism in the city of New York. Their columns were muscular, intelligent, street smart, and courageous. A trio of Montclair journalists recently completed work on a documentary about these two men. It's called Breslin Hamill, Deadline Artist, and it premieres on HBO on January the 28th. Back in December, I visited with Jonathan Alter, one of the co-directors of the film. We talked about Breslin and Hamill and why they mattered. We also talked about journalism today. Listen in. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Jonathan Alter, welcome to On the Record. Thanks very much. I've been a fan of your work for quite some time, and I've been a fan of two journalists that you've just made a movie about. I'm talking here about Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, two of my journalism heroes. What led you to make a movie about this? these two guys? Well, I had known Jimmy since 1986 when I wrote a piece about him in Newsweek. Uh, I was the media critic at Newsweek, and Jimmy had just won a Pulitzer Prize, and I, I wrote a piece about him that was, you know, a little bit mixed. Like, I, I, I didn't believe and still don't believe in puff pieces too much, and so I had, you know, some of the criticism of Jimmy, which was out there at that point in his career, and... Um, I that was when he was working for the Daily News. He was at that time. He was at the. Um, he was. He'd moved to New York Newsday. Oh right, I remember that. Um, and there was some criticism of him in the newsroom, as I recall. Well, that's a big part of our film because he later, several years later, he insulted an Asian American um, right. reporter I vividly and, remember and that. was suspended from the paper. But yeah. at this point, it was more. You know, people critical of him for embellishing when he would do his uh, his famous characters in his column, like uh, Klein the Lawyer and Marvin the Torch, and these great vivid characters that he would write about, and and then also just kind of being a, a brute around town. Uh, you know, as we explain in the film, Pete Hamill doesn't have any enemies. Jimmy Breslin has a few. Put him <laughs> okay, that makes sense. So I was, you know, reflecting some of that as well as Jimmy's good qualities, but he, I'd ask him some hard questions and uh, uh, just on deadline, and this is a, a story that I tell briefly in the film, um, I pick up my phone and I hear, Alter, you f- with me, I will f- you good because I'm the f***ing John Gotti of journalism. Never f***ing forget it. And he slams down the phone. Yeah, okay, well, this guy's going to hate me forever. But after my piece came out, I think he liked the fact that I was a little tough on him and I'd passed a certain test with him and we became friendly and I would go over to his apartment, uh, which was then on Central Park West every so often. And sometimes he would just call me without identifying himself. So I remember, I think it was in the 1996 campaign or 2000, I pick up the phone and I just hear, and the train started with a little jerk. I, I know said, that line. Okay. Well, it's, I know it's, that it's, line. It's a great line. So do you know who That's, it's from? I do. It's a great journalist who uh, was uh, uh, trying to skirt the New York Times uh, uh, position on 
you know, don't editorialize in a news story. And he was writing about Wendell Wilkie? Tom Dewey. Close. Tom Dewey, right. Yeah. Tom Dewey. So it was Murray Kempton. And I didn't know the line because I'm not as up on this kind of thing as, as you are. So I, I just go, Jimmy? And he goes, and the train started with a little jerk. And he, then he says, there's not one of you who can write a line like this. I was a political columnist for Newsweek at the right. time. And uh, he said, that's uh, Murray Kempton, 1948, writing about Tom Dewey. And he's speaking from the back of a train. The train starts and when he's still speaking, and he curses out the engineer and acts like a, a jerk. And so Murray Kempton's lead on his column was and the train started with a little jerk and and jimmy's point was that you know none of us could write that way and he was right um so in any event that's the sort of contact i'd have with him and then um i saw him um when his daughter was sick at sloan kettering and i i had cancer in 2004 oh, this rosemary uh, rosemary yeah she's also her um situation is uh you know a very poignant part of our film but in any event, I had cancer that year in 2004, and I saw Jimmy around uh, Sloan Kettering, and I'd, I'd talk to him every couple of years. And then in 2015, I ran into his uh, stepdaughter, Emily Eldridge, who lives in Montclair, and I said, how's Jimmy? She said, well, he's really old. He's going to die soon. I said, has anybody gone around and talked to him with a tape recorder or a camera or anything like that? And I wasn't a documentary filmmaker. I was... You know, uh, uh, I write books, um, history books mostly, and at that time I was uh, just finishing a project with Gary Trudeau for a TV show that we did on Amazon called Alpha House. We were just finishing our second season. Oh, that was the one about the uh, the lawmakers who all lived in a house? Yeah, lived in a house together. So at that time we were sort of wondering whether we were going to have a third season, which we didn't have, and I, I wasn't, you know, planning to jump into a... Jimmy Breslin documentary or anything like that. But then uh, when Emily said to me, uh, well, you know, people have tried to talk to Jimmy, but nobody's ever followed through. And I said, really? Like, all the stories he has, nobody's ever thought of really getting them all down? And and so she said no. So she was also friends with a guy named Steve McCarthy, who also lives in Montclair. And Steve and I had done about... 15 or 20 pieces together for NBC Nightly News and the Today Show. And he's a uh, very skillful, terrific freelance producer and cameraman cinematographer. A guy named John Block, who was a legendary Dateline NBC producer and is also from Montclair. This is really a Montclair story. Montclair is media central. We all know that. So um, they had made a, a film that was a smash at the Montclair Film Festival a few years ago called The One Who Got Away. It was about a a kid at Glenfield Middle School in Montclair who had been the star of of the elementary and middle school, and then he, class president, and he doesn't show up for high school. He's lost to the streets. He kills a guy, and the the middle school principal thought of him as the one who got away, Um, and so you, you learn his story. Anyway, they had been very successful with that, uh, documentary, and so the three of us just started going in with a camera and talking to 
Jimmy Breslin, and we thought, well, let's get Pete Hamill, too. And I had known Pete slightly. I had interviewed him in Montclair about his book about Frank Sinatra, which, unfortunately, we didn't have room for in the film. And It's a great book. Uh, it's a great book. But we didn't do much on their books or novel, you know, their mm-hmm. novels or nonfiction. So this is more about... Their journalism. Their journalism. Yeah, yeah. So we just started going with a camera to uh, Jimmy's apartment, Pete's apartment. Sometimes we'd interview them together, sometimes separately. And what was that like? Was Jimmy a willing accomplice to this thing, or did he was. take some jawboning? He was. He he was uh, very cooperative, and most important, his wife Ronnie Eldridge was very cooperative. And I think you know Jimmy always liked attention, so he was happy to talk to us, and he you know he knew us, and uh, he. Uh, was more mellow than he had been when he was younger. He was also somewhat reduced by age. He was in his mid eighties at that point, and um, still, even uh, half of a Jimmy Breslin is a lot. Yes. Well, I'll be interested in what you know your listeners think when they see the film because the, the Jimmy Breslin from when he's in his prime, and we have a tremendous amount of archival footage of. Of Jimmy from you know the fifties basically through the turn of the century looks like a completely different person than old Jimmy. Jimmy in his mid eighties, you barely recognize him. Um, in fact, we had to font Jimmy and Pete because you barely recognize Pete either uh, from from the dashing hunk that he was when he was dating Jackie Onassis and Shirley MacLaine at the same time, which is part of our film and. So uh, they were, but there was a poignancy to them in old age. And they were sometimes rivals and sometimes colleagues, but they always stayed friends. And Jimmy didn't stay friends with that many people. So there was a a little bit of a buddy movie quality to it, too. Although we didn't, you know, they didn't really have any ups and downs in their relationship except when... (laughs) Speaking of Jackie Kennedy and Shirley MacLaine, at one point Jimmy was hard up for a column, and so he wrote a, a column about, you know, who his friend and office mate Pete Hamill should date, Jackie or Shirley, <laughs> which uh, Pete didn't appreciate. Probably not. Shirley, Stay out of my personal Shirley MacLaine, who I interviewed, didn't appreciate it either. No, I'm sure. Uh, and so she, um, she's in the film. Jackie Onassis, of course, is, is dead, but uh, there's... That's an example of some of the fun that we have in it. I mean, it's a lot of it is a film about race and class in New York, but we we have moments of humor and entertainment that are spread throughout. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be right back. I can feel the pain. It feels like nice. But if I didn't feel pain, I wouldn't know that I am alive. That's Way McDonald, a talented 19-year-old singer who blazed her way to a third-place finish in season 11 of NBC's hit talent competition, The Voice. But what's it like when the show's spotlight moves on? And how do you raise such a talent? These are some of the questions we'll answer in our podcast, Head Held High, The Way McDonald Story. Way and her family gave us behind-the-scenes access during a remarkable period of her young life. It's a time when she released her first single, published her first children's book, and recorded her first album. 
We'll take you from her studio sessions to a Manhattan nightclub where she performed her songs. You'll hear from her parents, her mentors, and from Wei herself, who talks about how she overcame bullying to become the artist she is today. If you're a fan of The Voice, or if you're the parent of a talented youngster, or if you just love good music, you'll want to listen to this remarkable story. You can hear the series on SoundCloud, Apple Music, and at NorthJersey.com. We're back. This is John Enslin from The Record. I'm speaking with Jonathan Alter, who's just co-directed a film about Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill called... It's called Breslin and Hamill Deadline Artists. And my co-producers and co-directors are John Block and Steve McCarthy, also from Montclair. And I should mention this is a film that will be appearing on HBO uh, starting January 28th. That's correct. For some of my listeners who are younger and who did not live through the 70s and therefore don't know the prime of these two journalists' life, explain to them why these two guys matter. So it used to be in the mid-20th century that most newspapers in the United States had these local columnists who were very in touch with ordinary people, working-class people, and they often didn't go to college. Pete never went to college, and Jimmy just had a little bit. And they they spoke for ordinary uh, Americans. And so I grew up with Mike Royko in Chicago, um, but there were a lot of them, and there are still some. And we have a kind of a crisis in local news right now. Uh, so at one point in the film, we explain, for instance, how... Um, you know, 25 years ago, the New York Daily News had 450 journalists, and now it has 45. Um, so we wanted to explain partly how things used to be, not to say, uh, you know, everything's gone to hell, because there's a lot of great journalism that's being done, but to talk about when, when giants roamed the earth. And I, I think for a lot of people who've never heard of Jimmy Breslin, they don't know that you know he was so famous in the in the '60s, '70s, and '80s that he guest hosted Saturday Night Live. You know, he did TV ads. He ran for city council president of New York as, as a journalist with Norman Mailer. With Norman Mailer running for mayor, and you know, Pete Hamill was was also very famous, and he was in the gossip columns all the time. And he, but the most important thing is that they were speaking truth to power. And so um, the first, before you even see Jimmy and Pete in their old age, you see stories um, about the Bernard Getz case. Um, he was called, a famous subway shooter. They called him the subway gunman after mm-hmm. the Charles Bronson movie, mm-hmm. uh, which we uh, show a bit of in, the, in our film. And kind of a vigilante. Vigilante. He, he shoots these four black kids who had been panhandling on the subway. And at first he's a, he's a hero. Um, all of New York rallies around him because crime was so bad that people thought, well, this is what you get, you know. And Les Payne, who, uh, uh, like Tom Wolfe, who we did the last interview with uh, um, before he died, Les died shortly after we stopped shooting, and he's an African-American columnist 
for Newsday for many years, and he said it was Jimmy Breslin against the entire city of New York in 1984, um, because it turned out that Getz was a, a crazy person who just, like, he later conf- confessed that if he could have, he would have shot them even more than he did. He just unloaded his, his whole, uh, just, I, I can't remember how many bullets he fired, but he, he paralyzed a guy for life, and and he shouldn't have done it. It was a, a, a great example of what good journalism should be, to stand up even when it's not popular. At one point, Phil Donahue says to Jimmy, you're singing an awfully lonely tune. It's you against everybody. And Breslin says, I don't care. You know, this, there's a law against doing this. You're not allowed to shoot people in the back, you know? And, and then the second story that we do very early in the film is the Central Park uh, jogger case, Central Park Five. So a jogger is raped and beaten in Central Park, and um, these five African-American kids are arrested, and they're sent to jail. And before they're even indicted, Trump, who you know is not in the film other than this, it's not a drunk film, but he says, I hate them, and they deserve your hatred, and they must die. And he takes out, an takes out full-page ads in all the New York newspapers. He says they, uh, these guys must be executed before they're even indicted. And um, they're sent to jail for years, and then somebody else confesses to the crime, and his DNA matches. They were innocent, um, and they've been in jail for years. And we have Spike Lee in our film. We have a number of, of interesting... Um, celebrities who, who turn up in the film because they're, they so revered Breslin and Hamill. And Spike Lee says, you know, this, this was just outrageous. And Pete Hamill at that time writes a, a column about uh, Trump that just tells you everything you need to know about Trump and resonates powerfully in the present, as does a lot of our film. One thing that both uh, of these guys had in common, in my view, was they were able to tap into their own outrage. Yeah. Outrage over things they perceived as wrong. Yes. Uh, I, I think they did. And, um, you know, Jimmy believed that rage was the only thing that really does fuel good columns. We, uh, Pete wasn't always at that same point of, of outrage, but he he always had it social conscience and so the, the the they wrote a lot about poverty and they also witnessed a lot of big events so we saw our film as an opportunity to take people through the major events of the second half of the 20th century um, and you know Jimmy really made his reputation covering the Kennedy assassination uh, and uh, and funeral and wrote one of the most famous pieces ever ever written by an American uh, journalist uh, about the grave digger. The uh, famous grave yeah, digger story. And, and you know, on the way over here, I was thinking about that story, uh, because the last time I saw Jimmy was at an event in New York, and he told a very funny story that I'd never heard before um, about how his family, when growing up, the family electrician was a guy who also serviced the electric chair at Sing Sing. And he just is describing this guy. And in a way, what you said before about his connection with ordinary people was sort of his M.O. I mean, whether you were the electrician, the grave digger, whether you were the police officer who uh, took 
you know, was the first on the scene when John Lennon was shot. Right. Um, so that that's an example of, of something that ended up on the cutting room floor. Jimmy was was first first on the scene for that. But we had so many assassinations because he was he was also present when Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, and then in 1968. Jimmy and Pete were standing on either sides of Bobby Kennedy when he was shot. And, and Pete, uh, they were both good friends of Bobby Kennedy, and they, they wrestled Sirhan, Sirhan to the ground, and Jimmy sat on him. And they were right there. They were witnesses to all kinds of 20th century history. But to your point, Nick Pileggi, um is in the film talking about how you know, he's, I think at one point he says you could go to Oxford for you know ten thousand years and you, you you couldn't learn what Jimmy Breslin knew from the streets, and we have lost that. So part of the film is about what we've lost by not having this connection to working class people. Exactly, because both of them. Another thing that occurred to me they have both in common. There was a tremendous amount of shoe leather in their journals. Yes, yeah. that's they also a big. Not, they did not report from a desk. And a laptop or a phone. This is a big theme of our film, and and they 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 explain why you you need to be there to get the great story. So it's a film not just about Breslin and Hamill, but about journalism uh, and how it should best be practiced. About race and class in New York. About twentieth century American history, and and also about writing because. We caught a real uh, break. I probably shouldn't give this away because most people think it's Jimmy Breslin talking, but we um, we wanted their their writing to really be a big part of the film. And Pete is healthy enough so that he, and has a wonderful voice, so he could he, he could read his own column excerpts. Jimmy was a little too old for that, so we, we ended up hiring um, a, an actor named Michael Ruspoli, who played Tony Soprano's father. On oh, no Sopranos. kidding. <laughs> and uh, Michael just did this fantastic job, such a great job that most people who see the film think that it is Jimmy Breslin's voice reading his No, his I love columns. the fact that it's the voice of uh, the Sopranos. Uh, That's great. And, you know, it, he really has that Queen's... Yeah accent down but they had very different writing styles which we explore um, but anybody who's interested in good writing mm-hmm. uh, I think would be interested in our film Jonathan one last question is there anybody on the scene today I mean obviously newspapers are not what they once were big city columnists are not as commonplace but in terms of journalism today is there anybody out there you think that is going is our our present day Breslin or Hamlet? No, they're not. They're not really replaceable. Uh, we have a, an editor named Ed Kozner who says they were the last expressions of a certain kind of muscular twentieth century journalism. We have some very good columnists who are writing. You know, Dan Barry and Jim Dwyer, who are both in our film in the New York Times, and uh, Steve Lopez in the L.A. Times, Mike Barnacle in the Boston Globe, and you know others. Leonard Pitts at the Miami Herald. So some people are still doing this, but it is it is less of a tradition than it once was, and you know print journalism is in trouble. Something new will come along, as, uh, as Spike Lee and Robert Krowich and Gloria Steinem and others talk about at the very end of our film. We shouldn't despair because something something comes along that 
will take our breath away. And there's some very good reporting going on right now, particularly about Washington, good investigative reporting. I have a lot of confidence in young people, but it won't be the same, and we won't see their likes again. Well, Jonathan, thank you for being our guest today on On the Record. Thank you. And listeners, be sure to watch for this film when it makes its debut on HBO on January the 28th. That's our program for today. Thanks for listening.